get into our our study for today. We're uh, in Revelation 10. So I want to, before we actually get into that, I want to uh, get us back into the context of what has been talked about up to this point, particularly in chapter 9. So we remember that in chapter 9, there was a lot of, of, uh, of description of the difficulties that would befall creation. And, and what sort of set the stage for that was, was that God is very interested in getting people's attention, in particular, people that are unbelievers. The way that, the way that Revelation describes the unbelievers are those who do not have God's seal, the seal on their foreheads. We remember that from chapter 9. And so in reference to those folks, God, who is interested and zealous about bringing people to faith and bringing people into the kingdom through Christ, will do anything that it takes to get people's attention in order, in order to do that. And so we read in chapter 9, in particular, all these calamities that were going to befall the earth that were part of the different angels that were uh, mentioned in the chapter. And that each time they would sound a trumpet, then there would be this, this calamity of falling upon the earth. And so you think uh, in terms of the fact that even though these things would befall the earth in, in, in the attempt or the hope that unbelievers would come to faith, believers would still be affected, right? I mean, we, re we read, uh, for example, of uh, situations where a third of the earth is affected, a third of the seas, a third of the trees, a third of the grass, all those kinds of ideas, which would sort of, again, speak of the idea that, that not everything gets wiped out, but if a third of how you make your living gets wiped out, that's going to affect you. That's going to get your attention. And so we read how, um, how in many ways the unbelievers of the world were unmoved. And so then each time God would sort of raise the ante, if you will. He would sort of say, well, then if, it, if this doesn't work, then I'm going to do the next thing to get their attention. And so you think of, think of it from that perspective. How willing are you and me to suffer for the sake of unbelievers whom God is trying to get their attention to come to faith. Ooh. I mean, that doesn't seem right. Right? Pardon? Are they mean or nice people? Oh, that's what makes a difference there, Lee, if they're mean or nice. Okay, well, let's just test your Christianity by saying they're really mean. And they reject the faith. And they would persecute you and look at you and say, boy, you're just some ridiculous, you know, guy or gal. And so they're not very nice about it. How willing are you and me to suffer for the sake of God's getting the attention of people that have yet to come to faith? Now, maybe we have a list of, uh, the way of people that we would do that for, Right? And maybe they're the nice people, so we'll put them on the list, okay? Maybe you'd be willing to do that for a loved one, right? For your child, or for your parent, or for somebody that is in your sort of circle of people that you care about. Okay. We all probably have a list, of, a criteria, by which we would say, well, I'd be willing to do that for them. For a while. 
Okay? But what about for people that could care less? Would you be willing to? And the imagery that we get from the book of Revelation is, you're gonna. You're gonna. So the question becomes, how do we, who are the believers, who are living in the world that is affected by God's actions, albeit for a good cause, right? God's good cause is what? That everybody, that God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what the Bible talks about, right? So how willing are we to maybe perhaps sacrifice some of our own security in life in order that that might happen? Well, do we have a choice? We have a choice? Do we? Do we? Are you asking me? Oh, you're asking me. Okay. Yeah. Do yeah. we have a choice as to whether we suffer no. for them? No, no, we don't. So then, I mean, the questions. Right. <laughs> well, it, I think it, it. The question is a moot point with respect to if it's going to happen or not. Okay. Oh. Yeah, that's that is. I, I guess the question that I'm posing is, what is my attitude as a Christian toward that? Okay. Am I going to resent God? Am I going to resent the unbelievers in the world and say, if you guys would just get your act together, this would be a whole lot easier? Present See, what am I going to do with that? Yeah. Am, I, am I going to be part of the, the mission that God has to help bring people to faith by sharing the gospel, or am I just going to be stomping around mad all the time because look what they are doing to our world. See, that's, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. yeah. See, I think the, the diagram right there gives us the answer. The diagram? Yeah. Okay. Okay. We look to eternity. The, the question is really Satan's temptation, if you will. You're suffering because that guy over there is a jerk. You should be mad about that. Yeah. And we have to throw that thought away. That that has got to stay out of our brain. And eternity is what we're looking for. But if it enters your brain, what do you want us to do with it? You said throw it out of our brain, and I would say, yeah, let's throw it out of our brain. But, but our brains are, have that sinful nature inside, and so that's always going to be a temptation to go there. So what would you like for us to do with that? I just go flush the toilet. Flush it? Okay. <laughs> That's, that's a nice imagery. That's a very nice imagery. Yes, flush it. Okay, like that, right? It's a momentary affliction. It is a momentary affliction. Yeah, it is an affliction. Okay? But what the eternity perspective allows us to do is add the adjective momentary. See, momentary is a lot different than always. And we say that all the time, don't we? Always. This is always this way, never this way. The only thing always and never is eternity. Momentary. So you said what to do, replace it. Romans 8 18. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which says what? That you are present sufferings or nothing when you contemplate what's to come. Nothing compared. It's not they are they aren't nothing, but they are nothing compared to right, the glory that's yet to be revealed. At least that's what you keep telling me. <laughs> I, my goal is to be in your head. That's my goal. But there's something to be said for that. I, and I love the fact that you use that word programming. It, it's not really a choice in life. 
if you're programmed or not. The choice is with what? With what are you programmed in your thinking and in your doing and your speaking? Are you programmed uh, according to God's word or are you programmed according to the word of the world? Now, the the sinful nature we have is like a magnet for what the world has to say. So we have to realize that. That's why it's very difficult for me to program myself in a positive way if I'm only focused on my own programming. If I only listen to my own self-talk, especially when the mean people show up, okay? That's going to be really hard. You know, in Pastor Coleman's sermon, I was thinking about that. Um, kind of drifted in and out of the sermon today. But when I did drift in, um, you know, when he was talking about seeing God in things, and where the thought I had, I, this immediate thought, I thought, you know, we didn't really see God when we were driving through Waco. I just... I, <laughs> I'm going to have to discuss that with him tomorrow to think, you know, we, that probably would have been a better thing to do, actually, you know. But we were concentrating on other things at that moment. And, but see, but again, the question is not whether you are programmed or not. You are. We are. But the question is with what? And either it's going to be that eternity perspective or it's going to be all about the comforts and the security of life now and who's getting in the way of it. And if somebody's getting in the way of it, then how do I recapture that? Right? Well, one way to do it is just get rid of the people that are getting in the way of it. That's one way to do it. But the problem is that keeps us stuck, doesn't it? It keeps us stuck in that same sort of idea that joy in life is all about changing our present sufferings. All of, joy in life is all about eliminating momentary afflictions. Joy in life is not about that because you can't get that in this life. Joy in life is the eternity perspective. And what's interesting to me is that showed up in the epistle lesson for this morning. See, I think about all this stuff when I'm reading. It's a very weird thing for me. As I'm reading and I'm thinking, oh, we talked about that in Bible class. Oh, we talked about that in Bible class. But in 2 Corinthians 5, what does he say? Verse 2, for in this tent, that's the, the physical life we have in this world, we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. Another place he says, we know that while we are at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. While we're here... We're dealing with this, right? But we long for this. And that's the tension that we live in. We, we, we experience everything that this life has to offer, the upside and the downside. And when it's the downside, we can't wait to get to heaven. Okay. Yeah. My thoughts are, God has a purpose for everything. Okay. And in the midst of a momentary affliction or whatever, yes. what I'm thinking is, what do you want me to learn from this? Okay. Like if you're sitting in traffic in Waco, God had a purpose for that. Well, I'll be contemplating that for the rest of the week, I assure you. But see... It would make sense that you would come at it from that point of view, Marian, as an educator, right? That makes perfect sense. Yes. I was thinking as a pastor and a preacher, how will I include that in my next sermon? What is it that I will be advising people to do when it comes to I-35 and Waco? So there's, you know, different, different things. Timothy. Please all be 
when we were talking about like when we get angry, it's like I don't like suffering. I don't like all this. Right. I've learned when I get frustrated and angry, I have a crucifix hanging above my bed. Yeah. And I'm like, God, this ain't fair. This ain't a. This is. I don't enjoy this. And I'm like. If I was Jesus hanging on the cross hearing people, this ain't fair, this ain't fair. Right. I feel like he'd look at me and like, just be quiet, I'm here because of you. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, again, part of the eternity perspective is to think about what Jesus already did for us and how much greater the sacrifice was that he made for people that were, could care less about him and were kind of mean about it, you know? You know, again, see, that's, that's, so that gives you a perspective. And that's the point that I'm trying to get across here. And I think that where our focus is, is the, a lot of these things are going to happen. Sometimes they're going to happen because of what we've been reading in Revelation. Some things happen because there's evil in the world, even though hardly anybody ever wants to describe it that way. A lot of what happens is our own stupidity, frankly. I mean, we do this to ourselves, and then we look for somebody else to blame, right? So you put all those things together. The, the question is, what, in what way does your faith, and in particular your relationship with Jesus, impact that? It doesn't take it away. It doesn't mean that we become immune to this. We're in it. But it gives us a perspective. It gives us a place to go with it in our thinking so that we don't end up becoming uh, hopeless people, embittered by everything going on around us and just saying, well, you like that. It isn't that. It's a different perspective. It's a different point of view. And it's radical. And it's one that we can share with the world today because the world today is clueless about it. The world today is looking everywhere else for hope and meaning and purpose and a sense of what do we do with this. Okay, that's what the world's thinking. Well, well let's just change this. Let's make everything fair. Make everything wonderful. That's been tried a million times and the only fair and wonderful place is heaven. And that's our destination. So let's share that with folks. Yeah, Carl. Your point is very well taken. We have two, two choices when a tribulation occurs. Mm -hmm. We can go, woe is me, and care only for ourselves, and we can still keep our faith doing that, Right. but it doesn't, doesn't help anybody else. No. Or we can share our faith with others. We can say, woe, is, woe are you, and how can I help you? And suddenly people will say, this guy's different. This person is caring for me. Mm -hmm. Why? Even in the midst of that it. way, it opens us up to share the word of God, and so God's purpose in tribulation mm -hmm. says, "What are you going to do with my tribulation? Make make it good." And the thing is, I think to add to that, we don't really have to hide the fact that we are um, affected by the tribulation. I mean, I think sometimes we do that as Christians. We 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 sort of want other people to think that somehow we're we rose above it. Or somehow, oh, that didn't happen to me. Or, oh, you know, I just always think that what gives a, person the, the, a person's witness the greatest credibility and, and a sense of integrity is the fact that you have arrows in your rear end just like they do. And you're standing there sharing the gospel and the joy of Jesus with you, and you're going, oh, oh, uh, like that. And, and that gives a sense of being authentic instead of kind of this 
sort of like um, stained glass, you know, saint that is up in the stained glass, and we think, oh gosh, if only my life could be like that, you know, it to to get real about it, but to be able to talk about it from the perspective of, I got present sufferings too, I got momentary afflictions, and some of them aren't momentary. See, but here's the difference. Here's the, what, the difference that eternity makes is the coolest thing because it takes you, it takes this with you to that as opposed to I'm just going to live in denial that these things are happening or some sort of avoidance that, you know, oh, you know, oh, that couldn't have happened to me. Yeah, it, it does. Every single one of us has had one of those things or more. So that's the thing that I want to think, have us think about as we get into a chapter, chapter 10 is that, that eternity perspective. And so what we're going to see in this first part of chapter 10 is this wonderful, uh, this wonderful part of the vision where what Jesus does is he provides to John some sense of hope and some sense of, of sort of uh, lifting the spirit even while we're dealing with the fact that God is allowing creation to suffer or allowing creation to be impacted negatively by all these things that are going to happen. Okay, does that make sense? So let's look at verses 1 to following. 1 to 4. He says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, we have another angel. So what we've seen in the, uh, up to this point, particularly in chapters 8 and 9, was that the presence of these angels with these trumpets was, was signaling that things were going to get worse on earth than better. And now what Jesus does is he provides this, this little interlude in that where another angel comes on the scene, and this is an angel that carries with it a message of hope, that we, we should not and we need not lose heart even when it seems that everything around us has fallen apart. That the, that the Christian hope is beyond us, right, because it comes from heaven, but it is within us because the kingdom of heaven is inside of us. And so notice the imagery that's given for this angel coming down from heaven. There's a cloud, there's a rainbow, there's the sun and fiery pillars. What should that remind us of? Old Testament story, Exodus how does God deliver his people and then protect them on their journey toward the promised land? How does he protect them from the pursuing Egyptian army? Right? There's a cloud. There's fiery pillars. There's this brightness like the sun to blind them. And then also another imagery of deliverance is what? The rainbow. Where does that show up? In the flood. 
Okay, so the imagery there is this is an angel that is reminding us that God is all about spiritual deliverance, not temporal. See, that's the thing is that we got spiritual deliverance even in the midst of present sufferings, even in the midst of temporary or momentary affliction. So then what he says is he has this, he holds this little scroll and uh, with this little scroll, and we're kind of a little bit of what do, we, what do we do with that scroll? Well, we'll find out in a minute what that is. But notice the, the way that it, the, uh, the voice is projected or the voice is presented as the seven thunders, right? So let's look at Psalm 29, 3 to 4. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. When I was a little kid and uh, we uh, had all these like thunderstorms and there would be big rolling thunder, my grandparents or my grandma told me that that was the angels bowling. (laughs) Did, Did you all have the same grandma as I did? Holy cow. Wow. Yes. There must have been some book that our grandmas all used to get these sayings out of, because apparently we all grew up with the same grandma. Amazing, look at that. But what would would be the point of telling a little kid that? Yeah, so we feel better, right? It's the imagery of comfort. And that's kind of what we get here, isn't it? Right? These seven. Now remember what was the seven? So you sort of get the sense that that in the seven thunders, the voice of the seven thunders, that God's the totality of God's will was going to be revealed. That finally all the answers would be provided. And John is about to write that down, and then what happens? God says, Nope, not yet. God's holding out on us. That there's some 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 things that have to happen yet before he's ready to reveal all the things that he wants us to know. Okay, well, let's go to the next verse. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, there will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. One of the things that jumps off the page for me in in this little section of verses is that phrase, there will be no more delay. Because the angel is speaking it, but he is echoing the voices of every single Christian that is living in the reality of our present sufferings and also momentary afflictions. And what's interesting, and we've seen this already in the, in the book of Revelation in previous chapters, is there is this sort of sense of a little bit of impatience with God. You pick that up even, uh, even earlier, can't remember the chapter, where the, there's the imagery of the, the souls of the martyrs that are under the altar, and they're crying out, how long do we have to wait, Lord? And you, I'm thinking, boy, don't they know it? They've been in heaven, and they're, st- and they're saying how long. We're living on earth, and we're saying how long. And again, notice how it works for us, is that when life is good, we're not asking how long. 
Have you noticed that? None of us is saying, oh, Lord, this is terrible. Uh, we're saying, oh, Lord, don't come. I got things to do. That's kind of what we're saying when life is good. But when life is tough, when, uh, when suffering is upon us, when, uh, when we're being afflicted in some way, boy, I tell you what, that's when heaven starts looking, looking really good. And so there's this, this, uh, this, this, this idea that there should be no more delay. So here's the question. What is holding God up? Hmm? More people to come to him. More people to come to him. Yeah, to, to come into the faith. Well, why didn't he just zap them right away and then we could be done with it? Because he's God. <laughs> That's the best answer, because he's God. Okay. Well, let's go to the next page and see if uh, another part of the Bible can help us with that. This is 2 Peter 3, 8 to 13. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Hmm. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Okay, stop right there. What? Okay. Would you like to share it with the group? Well, somebody tried to mention that he was waiting for yes. people to come. Mm -hmm. and I thought it was just somebody. It's okay. You I can just, be bold here, Susan. I was Susan. just yes. confirming that they oh, were correct. That's so compassionate. So wonderful. <laughs> I got caught. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. You can I speak up. Oh, that's so sweet to hear that. Yeah. Okay. Well, all right. Well, let's stop right here, and then we'll, we'll keep going. All right. So, so the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. What's the promise? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Now, of course, there's a million other promises in the Bible, but let's just use that one. Okay? That's a pretty good one. So he is not slow... As some understand slowness, how do you understand when something is slow, like traffic in Waco on I-35 on Saturday, and you kind of are in a hurry to get back home, that is understanding slowness. So how do, what, do, what do we think about slowness? Are we happy about it? No. Does it get in the way of what we want to do next? Yes. That's how we understand slowness. And see, that's the same thing he's, he's saying here. Oh, I'm saved, so I should already be in heaven by now. Come on, Lord, right? But if we say that, we're not thinking about the, the neighbor. We're not thinking about the other person. We're saying, well, I got Jesus. He has me. Eh, what else is there? And he says, no, you have some work to do here. And the work that you have to do here it's not so much for you, it's good for you, but it's not all about you. It's for the neighbor, right? And so that's the idea here. I get this question all the time for people who are toward the end of life. And they're kind of worn out, right? Kind of tired. It's been a long haul. They did all the stuff they wanted to do. They're, you know, things are pretty well settled, whatever. 
probably some physical stuff is going on that makes it hard to want to just like get up in the morning, you know, things like that. And they'll ask all the time, I don't know why I'm still here. Have you had that, had that, you got that question? Yeah. So what would be the answer to that? Or not the, maybe an, what's an answer that you can give to that? Because that's a legitimate question. We don't want to just put the question down and say, oh, you're so selfish. We want to be able to respond to it. So what's a way to do that, Madeline? My mother-in-law. Your mother-in-law? Yes. Yes. 102. 102, yeah. Says, I just wish God was through with you, but he's not. I know. And she's not hurting. Right. She's, she got a pacemaker last year. She's a lot of immunity there yeah right right so the one maybe one of the reasons why she's still around is that her positive attitude could infect us okay yeah let's get her around the people that are about 120 and see if that would uh, make some pot yeah okay what else what 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 else do you say what else do you say to that? Because there's legitimacy to it. It, you know, life can be a bummer. What do you say? Well, for my mom, when she had all kinds of physical and you know mm -hmm. mental whatever at the end, she would say things like that. Uh, she said, "You know what? My body's gone. My mind's almost gone. I can't do anything for anybody." Right. And I said, "Yes, you can. You can do what you've done all along, which is pray, pray." Pray yeah. for these people. Sure. If you can't pick up the phone and call them, and you can't be around them mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you still pray. Yeah. And she was a prayer warrior. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes we sort of write prayer off as well. You can't do anything else. You may as well pray. I mean, that's dumb. Yeah. Prayer is like the big thing, right? And so sometimes we do. We fill our lives with so much stuff and activities and calendars and all that kind of thing that we go, oh, I don't even have time to pray. Well, maybe I need to unload that or God will help me unload it. And then that's a way for me to do that. I just like to say sometimes that, uh, you know, in the Bible where it talks about Jesus preparing the mansion for us, you know, he's not yet uh, done redecorating yours. So... Um, <laughs> Which is kind of a cool way to think about it too, right? Okay, well, let's keep going here. So in verse 10, he says now, so he says that the Lord is patient with you because, see, he doesn't want anybody to perish. See, he's patient with you because he doesn't want anybody in the world. So see, that takes the focus off of me and it puts it on the world and says somehow that I'm related to that. Because he wants everybody to come to repentance. Repentance, and, repentance is a word that's synonymous with faith. They go together. He wants everybody to come to faith. But then he moves it over into talking about eternity. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. What does that mean, laid bare? That at the end is a public accounting. See, right now, can't tell. I mean, some things are obvious, like does a person have faith or not have faith? It's kind of obvious. But at the end of the day, you don't really know. Whoa, we're going to know then. Everything gets laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, Peter says, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the new 
that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now notice the phraseology is, as you look forward to the day, right? Then that impacts your life here. Even while you're dealing with present sufferings and momentary afflictions. So I'm living in the reality of present sufferings and momentary afflictions. And what does he say? In that life, I ought to live a holy and godly life. What does the word holy mean? According to God's word. That would be a description of it. But what, what does the word holy itself mean? Do you know what it means? Set apart. Set apart. That's it. We, when we have Holy Communion, like we had today, we set apart the elements, the bread and the wine, for Holy Communion. That's Holy Communion. So set apart. So our lives are set apart even while I'm dealing with a life that seems pretty ordinary in terms of everybody else's life. And then godly? How do you know if you're leading a godly life? How do you know? What, what, so, what sort of criteria, what sort of guide could you use to sort of guide you in leading a godly life? Yeah. I think we can fool our conscience a little bit, though, maybe as, even as Christians. But let's think of something, something a little bit more objective outside of ourselves that would be the thing that I could use to sort of say, okay, this is what a godly life looks like. What, 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 what could I use? Yeah, Max. Love, love for your neighbor. You know, love for one another. Yeah, but that's still the internal, the internal expression of that is, is love for your neighbor. But what is it that guides me in terms of, gives me a sense of what love looks like? Ten Commandments. Boy, we're going bad. We're doing Confirmation 101 again after this study. Let me tell you. See, how do you know? See that, remember what one, the third purpose of the law of God's commandments is to act as a guide. It's, a, it's, a, it's not that it condemns you and says, oh, you're a terrible person, guilty, guilty, guilty. It's, it's the idea that now that I'm a Christian, how do I know what a godly life looks like? How do I know what pleases God? Well, I think I could probably use the Ten Commandments as a pretty good guide. Okay, that's the idea. And so that's what he says, holy and godly life. And so again, at the very end, so you are what? Looking forward to this, right? Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. There's only one way that can happen. Do you know? Spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. It's only one way. If you're forgiven. Yeah. If you're forgiven, which you are, and you embrace that through faith in Jesus, then guess what? You are spotless, blameless, at peace with him. So see, the message is, while I'm here, the strength that it takes to live this comes from here. It comes from my eternity perspective. And that means that the capacity to love one another or love your neighbor as yourself does not come from me. It can't. I, I'm, I'm capable of, the, of an inch of that. And then it kind of wears out pretty fast. 
like I did yesterday driving through Waco. <laughs> okay, so now we get to a really good part. So he says, back in Revelation uh, verse 7 there, 10-7. He says, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. So let's talk about what the mystery of God is. There's a great verse in Ephesians 3 that reveals to us what the mystery of God is. The Greek word is mysterion. Okay, mysterion. So let's look what he says here. He says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation as I have already written briefly. When did that, when did that initially start for Paul? Remember when he was miraculously converted on the road to Damascus, right? Jesus himself appears to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me, right? Okay, that's so that in the course of that. In verse 4, in reading this, then you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and the prophets. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. What's the mystery? What, what's the mystery of God's will? It was God's will all along that what? That, gent that, that non-Jewish believers, right, would join with Jewish believers, and together we would be one body. And certainly in eternity, that certainly is going to be realized. It's kind of hard to see how that's going to happen in this life, but maybe it will. It is happening in the sense that those who come to faith in Jesus, regardless of their ethnic or their religious background, they come to faith in Jesus, they're included in the kingdom. And see, that the reason why that's a mystery, the reason why that was like not known, is because all through the Old Testament, God was primarily speaking through the prophets to whom? To Israel. Now, never was it intended, even in, in speaking the message uh, to Israel, Never was it intended to say that non-Israelites would not be included somehow in the kingdom because it was all about faith. It was never about that you're born into a certain family or you're born into a certain race and then therefore you have status with God as opposed to those that were not born into that. That's always a subversion that people want to do is they say, well, I'm chosen... And so then when I say that, I'm already about to say what? I'm chosen, and you're not. I was born into, with the right name. I was born into the right family. I was born with a certain nobility. I was born with a certain race. I was born with a certain whatever. And because I am, that means I'm chosen. And because you're not, that means you're not. That's what humans do with what God had established already is that he wants everybody to be saved. He wants everybody to come irrespective of their background. And that ought to be really great news for us. God doesn't look at the outside of you. He's happy with the outside of you. He created the outside of you, right? But that, wasn't, that isn't what it's about for him. 
It's about wanting all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so see, early on in the early church, the people, the, the, the apostles and the early church were very confused about that. They thought that the only way that a Gentile could become a Christian believer is if they became a Jewish person first. Because the gospel originally went to the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish guy. The disciples were all Jewish guys. And so they thought, well, you have to become a Jewish guy. So how do you become a Jewish guy? You have to go through circumcision. And then if you do that, well, then you can become a Christian. And so it really took some, some real convincing on the part of the Holy Spirit uh, and through also the efforts of St. Paul himself to preach the gospel of this mystery which was you didn't have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. You could be a Christian. It's like saying the only way that you can become a Christian is if you become Lutheran first. <laughs> of course, we do believe that, but you know that's... <laughs> but some people could become Catholic first and then become Lutheran and then become Christian, right? They could do that, right? Sure. Oh, I say that for the Catholics in the area here. Yes, you know I love you. Let's go to verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea in the land. Remember the little scroll, he still holds it. So he's saying to John, go get that scroll. That's in the, this is in the vision. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. So I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. And then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You've heard of sweet and sour before? Here it is right here. Okay, so what does that mean, take something and eat it when it has to do with the word of God? You internalize it. Um, the collect for today. Do you know what that? I'm using church words now. What's the collect? What's the prayer of the day? Okay, we call it the collect because what that means is we're collecting the thoughts and the images of the of the of the service itself and put it together in one prayer. That's what we call it, the collect. Okay, so the collect for today talked about that that we would take the word of God and that we would. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest it, right? So what does that mean? When you inwardly digest it, that's what's happened here, right? You're going to eat it. You're going you're to dwell on it. You're going to contemplate it. You're going you're to kind of wrestle with it, as many oftentimes the, uh, the prophets would do. So when he did that, it tasted sweet, as the word often does. Oh, it's God's word. Oh, I love what it says. Oh, it fills me with joy. Oh, I shared it. I learned something in church. And then I started thinking about what it is I learned in church, and I go, oh, oh. You mean I got to do it? And then you got on I-35 in Waco. No kidding. <laughs> If only, if only we had had church before we left. That would have made a difference. I gave you an extra hour to 
read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. You had a freak out. Are you going to preach this same sermon to your husband? Because he was in the car with us. Man. But again, that's kind of what happens, isn't it? Is that God's word is a double-edged sword. That's often the way that, that, that one of the imageries of, of the word is a double-edged sword. Uh, it is on the one hand like, oh, I'm so relieved that the word spoke to me today. Oh, it was so wonderful. And then in the very next moment, your Christianity is being tested by somebody that's kind of crummy to you. And you're thinking, oh, I don't want those verses now. Right? And it impacts us in that sort of double-edged way. And that's the sense you get here. Because immediately after that sourness that he had in his stomach, he's told, you have to prophesy again. See, sometimes... The joy of prophesying, and, and sometimes we get a little confused on that word prophesy because people think in terms of telling the future, but the Bible uses the word prophesy in different ways, and one of the ways is, is that you're speaking forth the truth. It's not just you're foretelling the truth. I mean, that's certainly happened too, but, but you get the sense here that, that prophesy has to do with the idea that you have God's truth and you speak it forth. And when you do, you can count on people not being happy about what you're saying. And that's what we get that sense here. It's sweet as honey, but sometimes when you have to speak truth to people and they don't want to hear it, you're going to get blowback in your face. Right? And sometimes the blowback can be um, societal. Sometimes it can be in the church. But a lot of times it's on social media. And you think, why can't people just see the joy in it? Why can't they just see the love in it? Why can't they just see the, oh, heaven is the thing here? Well, there's a lot of different reasons for that. So that's what John was told, is that there would be more for him to say. So there is a quote here from Jeremiah 15 that is kind of a good way to reinforce that. Jeremiah 15, 16, and 17 says, When your words came, I ate them. So there's that idea of eating it, right? For they were my joy and my heart's delight. So there's the honey, okay? For I bear your name, the Lord God Almighty. Our joy is that we bear God's name. God's name is on us. And that's our joy, and that's our destiny in terms of eternity, even when we have to deal with the difficulties of life. But sometimes when you're the one who has to speak the word of truth, there's an impact. I never sat in the company of revelers. I never made merry with them. I sat alone because your hand was on me, and you had filled me with indignation. Sometimes there is a price to pay if you're going to speak truth. Make sure it's God's truth. Okay, make sure of that. Make sure it's God's truth, not just our truth. But just recognize that sometimes when you speak truth in a world that does not want to hear it, is that the blowback is that you're going to be all by yourself. Now the beauty is you're not, right? You're not. But the human experience of it is, is that you might, in fact, suffer some sort of uh, rejection. You might lose friends. You might have family members that don't invite you to the reunion 
Okay? It's a real possibility. And so when that happens, or if that happens, where's the joy and the comfort and the hope that we find? Eternity perspective, right? Eternity perspective. Yeah, I don't like this. I would just assume this not happen. But when it does, this is what gets me through it. Eternity gets you through it. Okay? All right, good stuff today. I think we can close. We're five minutes early. Do we know what to do with that? Look at that. We got through the whole chapter. Amazing. All right, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the way that your word continues to speak to us in very clear and relevant, uh, relevant words. We've often said that it was written so long ago, but it was like it was written yesterday. And there's so much that we need to draw from its wisdom and the fact that it feeds our sense of hope, our sense of security, not in this life, but in the joy of the life to come. And yet, Lord, we're still here. And so while we're still here, you have a a job for us to do. You have a mission for us. The mission is to be a part of helping people hear the words of that great promise that uh, you so love the world and that you love the world that didn't love you enough to send your son that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's our perspective. We can't always expect the world to get it. Sometimes the world doesn't even want to hear it. But give to us a sense of courage and hope as we share that, as we live it, and that perhaps through sharing it and living it, others may come to know you. So watch over us this week, dear Lord, in whatever it is that we deal with, whether it be uh, traffic or whatever it is. We pray that you bless our time uh, this, and this week until we're together again. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.